Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. I want to welcome our listeners back to this week's episode of Evolving to Exceptional. We have a guest with us today who is a best-selling author, award-winning speaker, and who shares my passion for helping organizations and turn managers into leaders, helping organizations get better results out of their leaders and managers, and has written a book that I just think is fantastic around the golden principles, and it's around life and leadership lessons from a rescued dog, which I can't wait to dig into a little bit and hear what some of those lessons are. Dr. Andy, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today, and what is it that you do and why do you do it? What is your passion around this space? You bet. You bet. Jessica, first of all, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm Dr. Andy Neely with the Neely Leadership Group. And as you said just a minute ago, I, I am passionate about turning managers into leaders. In fact, I'm privileged several years ago, My one of my coaches said, Andy, you use that phrase all the time. You should register that phrase. And so now if you go to my website, Neely Leadership Group, you will see a little R after that phrase, we turn managers into leaders. And Jessica, it's not just a registered trademark. Uh, I have been passionate about what makes a good leader for many years. My dissertation studies were in that area I've worked alongside a whole bunch of HR people that are always trying to invest in their management teams, the skills, behaviors, and mindsets that that help managers become leaders and not just managers. And you and I could have a very lengthy conversation about what's the difference between a manager and a leader, and they're not in opposition. Every good manager is a leader as well. Unfortunately, there are some managers who are not good leaders, and those are the ones that that your listeners end up writing about and blogging about, and we all do. Um, I'm like the, that, that old movie, The Blues Brothers from 20 years ago. At one point, their classic line in the movie is, we're on a mission from God to bring this. In some respects, when I get to do what I think I'm supposed to do on planet Earth, I work with frontline managers all the way up to CEOs, helping them understand Leadership is different than just management, and the best organizations have leaders and not just managers working with their teams. So I, I want to hit on something that, that you said right at the beginning there that stuck out to me, which is that you yourself work have worked with coaches and one of your coaches, and you mentioned yeah. that. And I think that's a powerful thing to, to hit on because oftentimes I find leaders and managers don't necessarily recognize the, the importance and the value of that coaching and having that type of resource. And I think when you have someone who is a coach and a coach of executive leaders who also has their own coach, it highlights why that's so valuable. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? You bet. In fact, I was speaking about that at 6 a.m. this morning because I have a, a mastermind group that I'm a part of that meets twice twice a month at 6 a.m. on alternating Fridays. And part of what we do is what you were just talking about, Jessica. We hold each other accountable. We drop the guard. We don't have to be in front of a client at that point, spinning things up. And we're just honest about, here's what I said I was going to get done. Here's what I didn't get done. Here's what I did get done. Let's celebrate together. And then 
uh, to your point, very specifically about three and a half years ago is COVID was teaching all of us that we got to respond to the world differently than we ever had before. I hired a, a professional development business coach who's been alongside me for three and a half years now. And it has been the best three and a half years of my career, probably in terms of growth and and understanding what I bring to the table and the little dent in the universe that I'm supposed to kick and how to do that well and be held accountable to it. So in some respects, I really have, I have four coaches because I've got a small mastermind group consisting of three really peers in the development industry. And then I've got one outside business coach that I hire on a regular basis. We're three and a half years into to that. So I fully agree with you. Everyone who's in any position of leadership should be mentoring someone and should be seeking mentors for themselves. Do you find, I'm curious if you've found at all a theme or why leaders don't do that to begin with or don't identify that need. And I'll speak to myself here because I actually didn't get coaching until towards the end of my corporate career when I was in the in the mm-hmm. corporate leadership space. And I and it's one of the things I say was my biggest mistake in my professional career was not getting a coach sooner because of the value I've gotten since then. Why do you think that it is that people take so long to make to take that step? I've wondered about that some. I think there's two or three reasons. I, I think the the one that you and I think of most often at times, because it's the bad news reason, is somebody who doesn't think they need a coach. Hey, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I lead my team. I own my company. Uh, I make the decisions here. I'm the one. The Everything ends with me. I think there's some out there like that, probably. I don't run into too many people like that. I think the honest... In my honest experience, the reason most executives that I've worked with who who haven't had coaches in the past, one, they, they haven't known how to access a coach that they felt could bring them value. And then two, in the busy responsibilities that they're, they had on their plate every day, it's how do I take that hour or that 90 minutes once a month to step out? And really the phrase that a lot of us use is, work on my business instead of in my business. And I think there's lots of really well-intentioned managers and leaders who just never quite get around to it because they don't know how to access it and they just don't know how to prioritize working on and not just in the business. I think that's a really helpful insight and perspective. And I just, I I think I I highlight it just because I do think it's so important. And I always want to encourage, especially other HR leaders to take that step earlier and certainly executive leaders to have that external support, to have that resource, to to get that perspective and increase your own level of self-awareness as well. So I'd love to get in. Most of the firms I work with, Wall Street would call them the SMB firm, small and medium business. So the two and a half million to 250 million, oftentimes privately held. When I work with the larger firms or when I work with the Fortune 500s or or the firms that are written up in the Wall Street Journal, when I work with leaders in those firms, oftentimes once they get to a certain level of director or VP or senior something, Part of their compensation is $5,000 a year for executive coaching or $10,000 a year for personal development. That happens, I think, in the billion-dollar corporate world. In the space I play in a lot of times with these $50 million business owners, the affectionately you and I at times would call them the chuck in the truck who started out 
as a plumber and today owns a regional plumbing firm with 50 trucks, they never built that into their time or budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I could totally see that being the case. Tell me a little bit about what it is you do do with these businesses that you're talking about yeah. and how you engage with them and help them in terms of their turning their managers into leaders. Yeah, this might be really appropriate for a bunch of the HR folks that you're talking with. I I probably would primarily be recognized as a trainer and a coach. I, I have a, a 12 or 18 month program called the Manager's Ascent that I bring into SMB businesses that includes a series of workshops, some self-assessments and some one-on-one -on -one coaching. Jessica, there's really nothing new in the area of leadership. I, I humorously say since Jesus Christ and Marcus Aurelius, there's been no new insights around leadership, but we all have our own voice around leadership. I've been thinking about what makes a good leader for many years now, and I've captured in what I call the four leadership necessities, conviction or vision, competence or execution, character, you'll never be a better person than you are a leader, and covenant, the relationship you have with the people that work for you. And so I have this simple taxonomy that is very simple, but still very robust. And I bring this to the organizations that I work with. So I help to give them a language around leadership development and each one of these four leadership necessities. And I work with frontline managers on this whole area of, of competence, um, getting their teams to execute. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm teaching frontline managers how to read a PL and a balance sheet because they, they, they've been in charge of this and now they're in charge of this and they have to understand they got to get their eyes up. When I work with CEOs, at times the challenge is to help them become industry experts, analyzing 18 months out and the competitive landscape and the impact of China and Europe on decisions that are going to impact their supply chains. So we talk about thinking broader and thinking farther. And those are the types of things that when I get to work with teams, I find it very satisfying because we all are wondering what's the difference between a manager and a leader. And I'm pretty convinced if, if people are working on these four areas, at least they're beginning to have a sense that, you know what, I'm not just managing what's in front of me. I'm working to become a high performing leader. So that's it in a snapshot. I'd love to go in a little bit more detail if you think it'd be worth it, but yeah. My first yeah, question yeah. is a little bit broader question then, and then I want to get into what some of those four leadership necessities mean. But as you talk about turning managers into leaders, what is your perspective on, do you think that we still need the traditional manager skill set? And do you distinguish between a, a what a manager does and what a, a leader does? Or is it your principle that everyone should be leaders and be really leading yeah. instead of managing. What's your beliefs or our thoughts around that? We could probably have an open forum with a bunch of your listeners right now and just have some very insightful discussions around that. There will always need a, be the strong need inside nonprofits and for-process firms and organizations. Things have to get done. Projects need to be managed. There's expectations, there's SOPs, there's KPIs that need to be measured. In some respects, that's the task of management. If we could simplify it very easily, I think managers focus on the doing of their job. Leaders bring to the table also the 
being of their job. You and I both remember that quote from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. People join organizations for the job. They leave because of their boss. Part of that, I think, is based on the fact that they're working for a manager who isn't a leader. The the best managers are leaders as well, and they bring both of those. So death to managers, no. We always need good, strong managers, but the best managers are also working to become leaders as well. I I love how you differentiated them in terms of the doing and the being, because I think that the doing leaves managers in a, or those that are performing from that perspective in a state of execution rather than in really paying attention to the performance of the, the, of people and the state of people and how people are operating and, and the being aspect, which I always talk about is really highly correlated with self-awareness and a sense of your, who you are and how you show up and what your current experience is. And I find that tends to be lacking pretty significantly in a large part of the leader population. Yeah. And I just had a conversation with one of my managers yesterday. Jessica, I have this very interesting world. In addition to the coaching and consulting and training I do, I own several small businesses, a franchise network of businesses here in central Texas, where I live. Got about 120 people that work for me. And I've got a management team that reports up to me. And I I just had a conversation with one of my managers specifically yesterday at lunch about what you were just alluding to. And, And in fact, Jessica, when you peel the layers back down to it, leaders need to be more vulnerable about their weaknesses than almost anybody else. That doesn't mean that they cry in front of their employees. In fact, we have a long discussion about some of the crying CEOs that have shown up on LinkedIn. But if a leader is going to lead well, part of what they do is recognize, I'm a procrastinator. I put things off. I better get a team around me that makes sure that we're hitting the SOPs in a timely manner. Otherwise, we're all going to end up pulling three all-nighters in a row to get that deliverable out the door. And that's not a healthy way to do it. Only when a leader is honest about their shortcomings can they really lead with excellence. And by the way, I am a procrastinator. I perform well under pressure, but I'm a procrastinator and it's cost my team painful all-nighters at times. And that's great self-awareness to to have that. And I couldn't agree more with you around the vulnerability of leaders. And one of the ways that we describe it is in in our programs is as performance partnering that that whether you're a leader or you're a manager or even an, another employee is that organizations need performance partners people that are partnering with other people to help them reach the the optimization of their performance or their capacity and I'm sure based on all the neuro programming work that you've done you are light years ahead of me on that One of our core values in these small businesses we own is we submit to strengths and we protect weaknesses. And I suspect that's consistent with what you're talking about. It is. And what was interesting with what you said about the vulnerability piece is one of the things we talk about is that we have neural networks in our hearts as well as in our guts. And so they are actually mini brains. You could call them brains if you want to, but they're complex neural networks there. And what we find is that a lot of leaders are either stuck in their head brain, so they're only focused from a head brain perspective, 
or what you talked about in terms of the doing manager, they're stuck in their gut because our gut is responsible for action taking. And so they're really good at doing, but they're cut off from their heart. And yeah. that's where our feeling and connection and purpose or are, are what we think is important lives is in our heart brain or is in our neural networks in our heart. And, and so I, I love that you hit on that vulnerability piece because that's a part that a lot of leaders really have to work on in yeah. order to be able to do that effectively. I think there's a really a visceralness to it. Part of my own personal journey to this passion, one, on the one side, it included my faith journey. I became a Christian at a very young age, and I'm reading about this man of God who served the people that he loved. And I had a couple of really bad bosses when I first 14, 15, 16, 17, some of my first jobs. Jessica, Jerry was a construction foreman on a job site that I worked on. At one point, his anger management issues got so great. He picked up the, the packet of paper that I was filling out after the completion of this job site. He picked up the stapler, opened it up and hit me in the leg four times with a stapler because he was so angry. And I remember, hey, I'm, I'm learning about this man of God. And then I'm working under people that are just not just bad managers, they're bad people. And it just created in me this, I didn't realize it, but with your language, probably my gut and my heart just had this instant reaction that was telling my brain, this is wrong. And, and hence my dissertation studies, hence the work that I've done for years with clients, trying to find a way to articulate what makes a manager into a high-performing leader. It's got to be that integration, right? Ab absolutely. And, and, and we quite literally say that when we're aligned, when our brains and neural networks are aligned and working together, they're all active and working together, yeah. is when we experience the best wisdom, when we experience the best outcomes and make good decisions and all of those things. Yeah. And whenever there's a misalignment, when there is bad behavior, like what you're talking about, there's some there's something that's cut off. There's something that's not working properly. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the root of most behavior challenges. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk with leaders about the whole perspective on character that at times people are saying, are you even really allowed to talk about moral, moral character in the workplace? And I'll say, yeah, you're, you're never going to be a better leader than you are a person and fair-minded, other orientedness, self-sacrificial, diligent, honest, this whole list of what we could call character traits. If you don't bring those to the table, people aren't going to follow you when the going gets tough because it's not just about the paycheck they're bringing home. Patrick Lencioni said recently in one of his podcasts, sure, people will always take a pay raise, but that's not why they stay. They they stay for deeper meanings. And what you're talking about, really what I talk about in the character and covenant aspects of these four leadership necessities speak to leadership is, is a whole life thing where, where management not bad, but management can be a project or a task-oriented thing. I, I love that distinction. Maybe you can get into a little bit deeper into each of those four leadership necessities and both maybe their importance and how how they're demonstrated. What does good look like in those yeah. areas? Yeah. I've been looking at managers and leaders for, as I said, for more than 20 years at this point and been trying to scratch my head. I see good ones. I see bad ones. I've got the anger management person and I've got somebody that people would go through brick walls to work for and figuring out the difference. And again, as I said, I don't think there's anything new under leadership, but I realized three of the four leadership necessities came to me pretty quickly. Conviction, competence, and character. 
conviction really, and I've made them all C words. So there's an easy acronym. Your HR people are going to like that because it breaks down into some nice training material and reinforcement material. Conviction really has to do with strategy, with bigger picture. I call it, as I said a couple of minutes ago, seeing broader and seeing farther. And at the front line for the shop floor manager, that means you're no longer just in charge of your machine. You're in charge of recognizing the entire shop floor and having your eyes on it. Sometimes, as I said, that means you need to begin to understand how do you read a profit and loss statement? So if your department is contributing to the sustainability of the organization at the highest level, that broader and farther does include strategic planning. We're in October right now. A lot of the SMB organizations I work with, these small and medium businesses, they know they're supposed to be doing annual budgeting for 2024 at the beginning of the third quarter of 2023. I hold some of them accountable to get that done because they are they don't have a board of directors. They're not reporting to Wall Street, but, but that's thinking further. Are, are you going to be viable next year so that you get to continue to serve your constituents, your clients, your customers? The, the second one, the competence one, it's now no longer about, are you good at your job? It's, are you enabling the people around you to get good at their job? Can, are, are you helping them to execute? And as managers turn into leaders, that means they, they become more aware of risk and decision-making to mitigate risk. Colin Powell, the, the general that led Desert Storm more than 20 years ago now, he said that the frontline army decision makers enter battle with life and left, left, life and death decisions being made with less than 65% of the information they wish they had. Obviously, business is not life and death at that extreme, but but as managers grow into leaders, they they realize I need to make decisions after evaluating all the risk I know, I still need to make a decision and move forward. Managers get stuck in the fact that I don't have enough information yet, leaders say, this is the best that we can do right now. The third area, this area of character really does bring me back to, it's not that managers shouldn't be emotional people. In fact, Jessica, I will say leaders should be some of the most passionate people in an organization. They care more than anybody else about vision and mission and values. The question becomes who's in charge, your emotions or you? Character-rich people, fair-minded, other-oriented, diligent, hardworking, self-sacrificing. That's the type of leader. I, I have a, a, a horror story of a leader that I was working with and his intact team in a workshop setting. One of his character flaws that he thought was hidden from everybody came out in the middle of this half day we were together. And Jessica, I saw this person lose the ability to lead that team of 15 or 17 people almost instantaneously. When they realized who he was, he lost. He just lost. The fourth leadership necessity, it took me a long time to get my language around it. I really just discovered the word perhaps in the last 18 months. Here's what I observed. People like you that are leading teams well, people like like the, your audience members who know they're doing a good job, part of what they do is they engage in a covenant with their team members. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, it's interesting because Guy Ritchie just produced a movie this year called Covenant that I watched recently that was a really good kind of an, a, a graphic war movie, but it was really good because it captured the obligation that's involved in Covenant. The best way I can explain it is here in the state of Texas, 
uh, we have marriage covenants. And if somebody's going to get married in the state of Texas, obviously there's the love and affection. I do, you do for good and for in weak and strength, in health and in, in sickness, for better, or worse, uh, all of the romantic side. There's also a document that is signed by the wedding officiant and recorded with the Secretary of State. There's both a personal and a formal side of leadership. And, and I suspect some of your audience today, they could tell their own stories about about that team member who was given an extra 40 hours of PTO that nobody really ever knew about because that's the right thing to do for that person. But that is also balanced with leaders are the ones who need to have hard conversations and hold people accountable. There is a formal process of excellence that's required at our firm. The best leaders I work with balance that tension around the formal side of leadership and the personal side of leadership. So these four leadership necessities, conviction, competence, character, and covenant. When I look at good leaders, I might introduce the language of this, but the good leaders I work with, they're already delivering on all four of these leadership necessities. Wow, that was a long explanation. What questions or what else should I elucidate? Yeah, I love how you described them all. And, and it's interesting to me because I love it. You use the C's and it actually lines up a bit with, we, we use, when we're talking about the three brains, we actually use three C's as well. So we use the creativity of our head, the compassion of our heart and the courage of our gut. When those three combine together is when we make the best decisions or when we live our life in our highest expression. So well, you and I need to co-author our next books together. Probably, yeah. right? <laughs> Interesting combination there. What I'm curious about is how, you, as you work with leaders, how do you put that into practice? So of course, some people just have that character, but if they don't, if there's a gap there, or if there's a gap in terms of their competence, that's probably even easier to fix or conviction. How do you work with them to, to bridge yeah. that gap? Yeah. If I could figure out and distill that down into a guaranteed formula, I could probably retire. Uh, it's a challenge because just like you, we're, we're dealing with real people here not just systems and processes. My work with organizations typically begins with a half-day workshop called the Four Leadership Necessities, where I introduce and we really get our hands around. It's case study driven. We get our hands around how these four leadership necessities play out inside the organizations or the associations that I'm working with. Uh, But then there are typically those few people who kind of surface and say, you know what, I realize this is an area that I'm not strong in, or I've got a team that's weak in this area. And then we go deeper into that. Uh, I'm a partner with Wiley, and I use their work of leaders assessment a great deal that captures where somebody is at and where they need to go. So a lot of times that will also grow into some self-reflection, some online assessments that they take, and then some one-on-one coaching sessions, either Zoom or face-to-face. Most of these days, most of my coaching is by Zoom. Um, where I work, I walk alongside leaders in a scheduled, regular way, talking about these areas and where do you need to go deeply. Another type of language you and I are both familiar with is is skill versus will, and how do we address those? And some of the elemental parts of the four leadership necessities are skills, and people can learn skills relatively quickly. When you're dealing with issues of will, People can still change. It just typically is a slower process. I suspect, again, thinking about the language you've just shared with me and your audience again, 
doing stuff above the neck at times probably is easier than stuff below the neck, right? Because that's really where you get in, you get into life story, you get into issues that oftentimes go beyond work and that's sacred ground. And you walk carefully with people through that. Yeah. We, the way that we look at that is that's our, those are our neural pathways. Those are our um, neurophysiological ways of being. And so when there's a will-based challenge, and, and this used to drive me crazy, right? I'd work with managers and leaders. They'd know how to do it. They'd know what to do and why to do it. And some of them even wanted to do it, but then I could, they wouldn't actually do it. They wouldn't actually give feedback. They wouldn't actually set clear expectations. They wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't execute on it. And as I've learned the, the neuroscience side and the neurophysiology, most of that is because there is a neural pathway that's blocking are preventing that is standing in the way. And so you've got to rewire the neural pathways. You've got to learn how to work within the the body because it's really stored within the body. It's a stored pathway. So it's a different way of approaching the same, the same kind of challenge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you and I've gone down parallel paths in some respect with some of that thinking. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in the leaders that you're working with. What are they maybe struggling with? What are you needing to focus on to really support them and help them to get to to be able to navigate the very dynamic, changing kind of world of work that that folks are in today? Yeah, I think all of us would acknowledge the challenges have always been great. I think the challenges are probably greater for leaders today than perhaps they've ever been. I was working with a small manufacturing firm in uh, uh, Eastern Tennessee earlier this year. And one of the managers that I was working with, he said, Andy, I've got 70 year olds and I've got 17 year olds on my team. How am I supposed to work with that age spread? And and if you and I are up on our generational things at all, that's like boomer and millennial and post-millennial and Gen Z, and they're all blended together. Um, yeah, Brene Brown has done a great job for all of us because of her books she's written over the last number of years that you've got to bring your heart to work and you've got to you've got to be a whole person at work. I think the challenge that I see is the balance of that. Part of part of the dichotomy that I that I draw for the teams I work with at times is there's a difference between being nice and being kind. Being nice is the wimpy out where everybody likes you. You're the grandfather of the business sitting up in your office or at the end of the Microsoft Teams call. At the other end of the spectrum is kind. Kind still brings nice to the table, but kind is also firm. Kind has the vision of the future viability of the organization. Kind isn't afraid to have hard conversations and hold people accountable. And I think every one of us as a manager is somewhere on the continuum of that. 25 years ago, that that whole, we're going to promote the A's, we're going to put the B's on plan, and we're going to fire the C's, that, that was too far to that extreme. And there's been a backlash against that that is a healthy backlash. On the other hand, we can't be so easygoing with our team that we are not viable as a business in two years because the profits walked all out the door. There's a tension that every leader has got to manage. What's that phrase? A a good leader is more concerned with being respected than liked. And I think that's the tension that leaders wrestle with in 2023. I think that's a powerful insight and, and really speaks to 
the tightrope that leaders have to walk in navigating those challenges. So tell us maybe a little bit about your book and the golden principles and how that came about and what that's all about. You and I talked earlier, as you can see, there's a couple of pillows on the, I'm working from my home office today and my wife's got our little front office decorated warmly. We're dog people. We've been rescuing golden retrievers uh, since four years into our marriage. We're on rescue number nine and 10. Those are pillows of Mickey and Sawyer right now. And Jessica, I recognize a number of years ago, really before I finished my dissertation studies, I realized I'm learning as much from these rescued dogs, these dogs that came from bad environments who wanted to be loved, but didn't know how they could enjoy our love. They were fearful and had issues and they, they just did bad dog behavior a lot. And as we learned more and more, how do you take care of a wounded hearted dog? It ultimately ended up being one of my speeches that I was delivering like 10 years ago called the Redford Principle. And it was about the worst dog we ever rescued. He had been a breeding sire at a puppy mill the first year of his life. He came to us malnourished. He had mange. He just, he was fearful of everything. And it took us a long time to win him over. It took us months and years. He never, in fact, fully became a normal, healthy, outgoing golden retriever. They call golden retriever starter dogs for a reason, right? Because they're happy about everything. They're easygoing. He never quite got there. And I would tell a story about Redford and just talk about time and trust and other orientedness. This was like 10 years ago. And at one point, a a publisher, one of the meetings I was at, there was a, a book publisher in the back of the room. And he simply said, hey, you got any other dog stories? And I remember saying, Kent, I I think most of what I've learned about leadership is from these dogs and how we've had to learn. And he said, that'd be a good book. And a year later, The Golden Principles. He changed the title of my speech, The Redford Principle, from our dog named Redford, into The Golden Principle because the golden rule and things like that. And they were golden retrievers. So The Golden Principles, somebody at Amazon loved it several years ago. And and I ended up being able to call myself a best-selling author. It's like a chicken soup for the soul book for dog lovers. And it's just sweet stories, but it's stuff, Jessica, that again, you have your language. I have my language. You would resonate with this, right? It's that silly little play bow that you see dogs do. They get down and they put their tail up in the air and their haunches Mm -hmm. down. That's really communicating. I'm friendly. I want to play with you. We humans at times with scared dogs need to get down on our hands and knees and do the child pose to let dogs know that we're safe. And when I first approach a dog, if you're with me, you'll notice I always take my hat and my sunglasses off because dogs read eyes and they read the head of the body. And so there's just these subtle things. As I was talking about these, I just recognized these are some good leadership principles. And so the book's stories about our dogs and what they taught us. And yeah, of the couple of books that I've written and the blogging I do, I think probably there's the best truth of all is in this simple little The Golden Principles book. So I I have to say what I love about this is the difference between humans and animals is really our cognitive ability, right? Our ability to rationalize. And I think what you're talking about is the wounds that animals carry are much more visible because there isn't this cognitive ability to cope, cover, manage type of reaction. And so as you speak about it, what keeps going through my mind is, yeah, we're actually the same way as humans. We just do a much better job 
of cognitively covering for those things. And even the behaviors you talk about are the expressions. We read people's faces and facial expressions significantly and in an unconscious way in order yeah. to determine safety or risk. And so even if a person's saying, I think for leaders, this is really key. If they could be saying all the right words, but if they don't feel them, then we're, the people are going to pick up on and not feel safe. Yeah. with that leader. They may yeah. not know why, but they yeah. won't feel right with them. So it's an interesting way to look at it. No, you're exactly right. I know we're coming to the end of our time together, but boy, I could tell you stories that my dogs have taught me. I, I used to come home from many of my late night business trips and I'd walk in the door at one in the morning after the last flight back into Austin and I'd drop my suitcase and my backpack. I'm home because I expected everybody to come down and see me and Redford would run. And of course, it was because it's one o'clock in the morning. It's dark. Everybody's asleep. Who's this loud person banging into the house? It was exactly the wrong behavior because I was self-focused rather than him focused. And I'm sure you and I both could share a lot of examples of that type of really leadership focus. The best leaders that are listening in right now, we all know leaders serve their organizations. They're not at the top of the pyramid. They're at the bottom of the pyramid holding well, everything I think I totally agree. And I think that, you know, you said something throughout a few times of there's nothing new in leadership. And I would say if there's one thing that I feel like is it's not necessarily new, but it's not incorporated into a lot of leadership or leaders is that self-awareness is that that really understanding the messages of your brains and bodies, the messages and what that's how that's being received by other people's brains and bodies and how that's internalized and yeah. impacting them yeah. is, is the piece that's probably the most, the yeah. kind of the missing piece, if you will. If, if there were anything new, it would be that. Yeah. I think that that phrase, the first job of a leader is to lead themselves well, I think really captures that, right? You'll, you, you don't get to lead others until the personal side of leading is addressed. Yeah. Yeah. I love the work that you're doing and the book that you're doing. Can you tell just a little bit of to our audience? I want to give you the chance to just share any key insights, key wisdom, and a little bit about if they're interested in getting in touch with you or, sure. or, or learning sure. more about you, where they can find out more about you. You bet. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. First of all, for the readers we have out there, the, the book, The Work of Leaders by the Wiley Group, and then True North by Bill George, both of these books have been just foundational in my understanding of leadership articulation. As I've got a little ebook called The Three Imperative Leadership Conversations that I make available to folks like your, your followers. They can get that little ebook simply by going to leadershipmaterials.com, leadershipmaterials.com. In fact, my business coach several years ago said, Andy, I can't believe nobody owns this. Every good web address is already owned, but nobody owns leadership materials. Buy it because you're a leadership guy. So leadership materials, if somebody goes to that link, they fill out the form and they'll get a simple ebook and they'll also be added to my list and we can start a conversation at that point. So leadershipmaterials.com. The other thing is simply to go to my website, neelyleadership.com. The good news about my last name is it's spelled distinctly enough that if you get it right, you're just going to come right to me, N-E-I-L-I-E. And I've got a, a link there to my calendar where I would be glad to grab 15 minutes with anybody that wants to go a little bit deeper and talk about how I might support them inside their organization. 
Fantastic. I look forward to checking all of those resources out and getting your book because I think it's going to be a, a great read. And I love a little bit lighter reads anyway. Sometimes you get too heavy into the the more difficult or complex reads. So some of those lighter things and one more kind of neural pathway thing, those things connect to our, our emotions, which actually create longer behavior change. Because when we connect to that emotion, our we're more likely to change the behavior. So I think it's really smart of you to to tie those two things to those two things together. So thank you so much for for coming on today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our, our listeners today? No, I love the work you're doing. It's interesting to me that you and I, although we've not spent a whole lot of time together, there's some parallel paths we've gone down because we both are students of human nature and want to make the world a better place. Thanks for the privilege of speaking with you and speaking to your audience members. And and I hope we get to do this again real soon. Absolutely. It's been great having you on. And to our listeners, I just want to remind you, as I always do, to always keep evolving, keep growing, keep looking for those opportunities to rewire your neural pathways, to change your life in ways that create more exceptional experiences so that you can enjoy your life and one day look back and say, I really, truly lived an exceptional life. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and we will be back again next week with another episode.